So income inequality is a phrase that we're going to hear a lot about probably in the next year. Maybe more so than what we ever anticipated. But it's probably for a, a good reason because many studies show that in the United States, even currently and probably for the last 150 years, the rich continue to get richer while wage growth stagnates for middle class families. And that gap between rich and poor continues to grow. And one striking example is, is that in 1965, CEOs made about 20 times more than their average employee. And now in 2016, the last time that we have some statistics on this, instead of it being 20 times more, it's 275 times more. An average CEO makes 275 times more than their average employee. So the inequality is even greater on a global scale. In 2018, less than 1% of the world's population owned 45% of the world's wealth. This gap between rich and poor is especially apparent in the developed world, in the developing world rather. One photographer by the name of Johnny Miller illustrates this by taking these aerial photographs above cities where you can see the line between wealth and poor. In city after city, luxurious homes and golf courses are bordered by protective walls that separate them with small corrugated tin huts and wooden huts and where you can see this huge disparity of golf courses and huts. But such scenes were not unfamiliar to our prophet Amos that we just read about. And he passes judgment against the luxurious lives of the wealthy upper class of Israel. He says, I will tear down the winter house as well as your summer house, and the houses of ivory shall perish, and the great houses shall come to an end, says the Lord. And that's in chapter 3. But archaeology lately has shed some light on the setting that Amos describes. Excavations at Samaria, which was the capital of Israel at the time, unearthed a large collection of carved ivories from the 8th century, which would be the time of Amos, where he talked about these large beds of ivory. But then excavations of Tizra, which was the earlier capital of Israel, found striking differences from the 10th century, so 200 years before that, than the 8th century. In the earlier time period, the houses of the town were similar in size, close together, and small. By the 8th century, there was a section of large houses made out of ivory, while the majority of the city was crammed into small housing on the other side. So if we take Amos as our guide, it seems that while Israel's upper class enjoyed many luxuries in the 8th century, they did so at the expense of the poor, who were in danger at that time of being sold into slavery if they fell into debt. So Amos chastises the rich. Those who, like the rich man in the parable from Luke that Corey preached about last week, ignore the plight of the poor. It says, alas, for those who are at ease in Zion and for those who feel secure on Mount Samaria, the judgment of God that he is pronouncing is for the rich people in the north and south, kingdoms alike who lie on beds of ivory, and they lounge on their couches. They eat lambs from the flock and calves from the stall, and they eat whatever they want, they do whatever they want, they sing their idle songs, but they are not grieved by the ruin of Joseph. Now, it's not completely clear 
when that first reading what Amos means by the ruin of Joseph. Joseph, of course, in this instance, means the northern kingdom of Israel at that time. That is what we're talking about. And some scholars date that phrase to the late 18th, 8th century, not 18th, the 8th century, where Assyria threatened Israel, so there was some war going on. But given the context that we can read in Amos, we can see that the ruin of Joseph probably refers to the unjust economic conditions that Amos is concerned about, that reign of violence that he talks about, which under which most Israelites lived because they struggled to survive. This economic system was not the biblical law that was envisioned at, the, at its writing. See, the year of Jubilee legislation, well, that was in place in Leviticus. That was in place so long beforehand. In Leviticus 26, it mandated a system whereby no one could accumulate too much wealth and where every family had land to support themselves. Even if they had to sell their land because of illness or drought, they got it back in the year of Jubilee. But 8th century Israel did not embody that vision of economic justice. And so Amos's judgment for 8th century Israel is harsh. Those who enjoy luxuries while ignoring the poor will not be considered the notables of the First Nations. They will also be the first to go into exile, he says in 6-7. And it is worth noting that Assyria conquered Israel and then took its people, especially its nobility, into exile about 35 years after Amos prophesied this. So Amos's judgment is harsh. But the, the theologian Abraham Heschel puts the prophet's words into proper perspective, I think. The, proper word, the prophet's words are outbursts of violent emotions, Heschel says. His rebuke is harsh and relentless, but in such deep sensitivity to evil is often called hysterical. But what name should we give the abysmal indifference to evil? which the prophet is bemoaning. Because they drink wine from bowls and anoint themselves with finest oil, but they do not grieve. They do not grieve the ruin of Joseph. Amos decries the complacency. He chastises those who consider such economic equality as just the way things are. Right? This is just the way things are. And Amos isn't having that. He's not okay with the way just the way things are. With those who have time and wealth to be idle people while other people struggle to make ends meet. God's judgment in the book of Amos arises out of Israel's status as God's chosen people. God wants them to live as if they were chosen, and with that election becomes accountability and responsibility. It says, Here the word of the Lord is spoken against you, O Israel, against your whole family. I brought you out of the land of Egypt. You have only known all the families of earth. Therefore, I will punish you for your iniquities, it says in Amos 3. The more that I preach the whole text of Scripture week in and week out, meaning you know, we read these Scriptures every week and glean from these Scriptures every week, I'm beginning to notice some important themes over the last year. And income inequality is definitely one of them. Care for the poor is pretty high up there on the ways and desires of Jesus. And it has a through line from the Old Testament all the way to the New Testament. But why? Why is this so important to Jesus? 
I read a quote this week that said the most miraculous thing that Jesus ever did was not that he became incarnate. It's not that he just became man, but it's that he became a poor man. Because Jesus could have come and become an emperor, but he became a pauper instead. Why? Why is this important to us? Because to be God's people, whether in the synagogue, with Amos, or in church on this morning, it means to be held to a higher standard. We follow a God of justice, a God who has special concern for the poor and for the oppressed. Part of our calling as people of God is to live out in our daily lives the character of the God that we follow. The character of the God that we follow. See, I talked a little earlier about the year of Jubilee from Leviticus as the paramount of God's economic desire for humanity. But in all of the immaculate record-keeping from the Israelites, we never see an instance where the year of Jubilee was actually ever carried out. It was a thought. It was talked about. It was acknowledged. It was desired. But we never see evidence that it ever happened. It never really existed. See, the ways of God are sometimes just so much higher than ours. The ways of Jesus seem to be so much better than us, bigger than us. But like Amos, it doesn't silence what we know to be the truth. We can't stop speaking the ways of Jesus. We can't stop speaking the ways of Jesus. Amos talked about seeing this huge disparity of housing, and we see that today. If you've driven in Memphis in the last couple of years, you know that you can drive past $300,000 homes separated only by Southern Avenue from $15,000 homes right next to them. We see it. And if you live in Olive Branch like we all do, we know that we hired our government housing beyond the view of our beautiful two-story brick homes that we enjoy. The pain of Amos still exists. The pain of Amos is still here. But the difficult, bigger, larger dream that Jesus had for humanity exists as well. His desire of economic justice that stems from the year of Jubilee to the refrain from Amos to Jesus' call for us to care for the poor, it exists now. It exists within us and within our hearts. For the wealthy among us, and if we're Americans, that would be us, the judgment Amos pronounces is not only for the sake of our brothers and sisters in need, but it's for our sake so that we may learn to see clearly and discern rightly, even in the midst of distractions, that which would keep us from following Jesus. The judgment is for our sake, so that we, in the words of the epistle lesson that we read today out of 1 Timothy, that we may take hold of life that really is life. That we may take hold of life that really is life. See, the words of Amos are good news. It's good news for us today because the words of Amos show us that God is concerned about our neighbor. God is concerned about us. And that wealth that he has entrusted to us does not become a reason for complacency. The words of judgment are intended to lead us to a life that really is life. A life for ourselves. A life that comes from God. A life that makes us care for our planet, 
that makes us care for our brothers and our sisters in need, for those around us, a life that means we care for one another, that we bear one another's burdens, and that we do it together. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you.